is the J cut, this is the K cut. I'm Rachel and I write for Films Fatale. I have 10 features and two shorts to go before I'm ready for the Oscars. How are you guys doing? James here. I'm doing pretty good. I am a content creator. I create and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm also one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. And I have one short and 27 features to go left in my Oscar journey. This is Andreas Fabulakis. I run and also write for Films Fatale. I have literally one short left and it's been one short for the last like week or so so we're all talking about the same short yes two distant strangers which is coming soon on netflix that's not a paid for campaign i wish it was that means i would have probably seen it by now but that's not the case but we're not doing our oscars episode yet which will be happening the tuesday before the academy awards it's going to be very exciting while racing to finish all of our nominees um instead we're doing our other big mission that we've always been looking forward to each and every month that is our monthly cinematic smorgasbord so if you're a new listener what we do is there's three of us perfect we each send each other a recommendation so this month james recommended something to me rachel recommended something to james and i recommend something to rachel and we have our kind of like a book club type thing, the movie of the month, because it's International Women's Month. We decided to go with me, you, and everyone that we know, which is by Miranda July. And that will be a very interesting discussion. So we will get into that in the second half of the episode. But first off, I, I'm just going to ask, because I feel like after that movie, Rachel, you've had a hell of a month. <laughs> I've got to ask, because I gave you one of my all-time favorite films, but it is a unique one. So, Rachel, what did you watch for this month's Cinematic Smorgasbord? Well, unique is definitely what I'd call it, too. It's Bunuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, 1972. I absolutely loved it. It was such a ride through different types of reality. It felt almost stagey at times, and... I just thought it was really, really splendid and definitely deserved the foreign language Oscar it won. Yeah. What I think is so interesting about it is it's known everywhere as surreal. Surreal, surreal, mm-hmm. surreal. And it is. But when you first start watching this, even for like the first maybe half an hour, you're like... Very down to earth. Yeah. It's like, this is peculiar, but it's not surreal. And then, you know, your wish comes true and like... Uh, it really hits the fan and you're like, wow, okay, that is a very peculiar film indeed. Uh, not even peculiar, it's just downright insane. And the characters always treat it as down to earth, even if the situation is completely absurd or has no lead up or anything like that. It's always taken very seriously within the context of the film. Oh yeah, like, oh, but Buniel is like in my top five even directors of all time. I just absolutely adore him. And um, something that I've always said when it comes to him is if you're a new film student getting, you know, into the medium for the first time, uh, a on Delu is a Salvador Dali film, but the more you learn about film, it really is like a Buñuel masterpiece. And the more you watch him in general, yeah, you could describe him as weird, you know, as surreal, but as you pointed out, he is so serious about what he's discussing, even if it's like a satire or really cynical, He really does prioritize his commentary on a a serious level. Like, you know, the severity of what he's trying to say about the upper classes and the mistreatment of the working class. And the the international stuff with the ambassador. Exactly. 
like uh, a film like Jessica Charm is is really is like the greatest hits of Beniel, whether it's the comedic side or the surreal side or the the intense side. It really is like a mixed everything that he's ever done that's amazing. So it, it really is like the best place to start. How familiar with his work are you? I've seen a few of his films, obviously Andalou and Los Sovitados, a couple of others. So mm-hmm. yeah. okay, so like his more, uh, even though they're still a little strange, his more real stuff of like the 50s and 60s and yeah. whatnot, I guess. To put it bluntly, I get his deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, once you, once you see the film of his, you're like, wow, yeah, he, he's got some stuff to say. So um, where does this hold up in your, uh, you know, in, in his filmography, would you say, from what you've seen? I would say it makes his other films make more sense to me. It sort of draws it all together into a more cohesive body of work. Um, you can see the thematic and stylistic threads going through it. Um, I thought of Enchant Lalu a million times, even though it doesn't really on the surface have a lot in common with this, because I think that same tone was brought to it. Of- it also has a lot of callbacks. So if you were to like only watch those two films, you'd be like, okay, he's certainly got to deal with like cockroaches and bugs. Uh, you know, the yes. image of like pianos and like, you know, uh, religious monarchies and stuff like that but oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you look at it if you look at his other stuff he he does branch away from that stuff but there are certainly callbacks to uh yeah like los Ovidados is incredibly realistic by his standards exactly so i mean like those two films if those are the only two you watch you'd be like yeah he's he's got his images but he really doesn't like he's completely unhinged but it's it's, it's an obvious callback to you know to his first film because i believe jessica charm was like his second last before mm-hmm. um obscure object of desire i believe because that was that was like his final film which is also like fantastic i think phantom of liberty came first i don't recall but either way it was like one of his last films arguably as opus depending on who you ask so i'm glad you liked it because it's either like i need to see more Bagnell in this vein or what in the hell did i just watch i don't get it well a little bit of both really a little bit of both. So are you going to check out more of his weird stuff? or? Oh, yeah, yeah. Once we're through this whole Oscar disaster, I'm going to go back and forth with some Bunuel and maybe a bit more from that era from other filmmakers in his vein. Cool. Okay. Well, again, I'm glad that you liked it. James, I'm, I'm guessing you have not seen it. No, nope, but I'm going to have to check that out. Oh, you, you would love it. There's out. so much commentary. It's kind of like Parasite if it was dropped on its head. Okay, I definitely need to see it now. <laughs> yeah, I have a really... It's not like in your vein, James, but I feel like you would still really like it because it's just so different. I think it's one of Frank Ocean's favorite films, oddly enough. Like, I that think makes he brought a that lot up. of oh, sense. Oh, now I really have to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you haven't, uh, to any listeners, Frank Ocean released with his uh, Boys Don't Cry magazine, which came out in tandem with his Blonde album. He came out with like a top 100 films of his where it's like, uh, oh, what was the film? Atlanta, I think it's called. Or it's like, yeah. And it's like, this film's like, uh, or it's like ATL. I don't, I, I haven't seen it, so I don't really know what it is. But uh, this film's like dear to my heart, but everything else is like objectively fantastic. Like Taxi Driver, uh, so there's some Walker Wire in there, David Lynch in there. You know, all of it makes sense if you listen to his music. So yeah, obviously, Benyel's in there as well. But, uh, James, you just said you have to check it out. Uh, you're you're going to have to. But what did you check out this month? Yeah, my assignment was Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Quite an introduction. Speaking of weird. <laughs> this movie was wild. I was not expecting that. And for you to say that, that's a lot. It just sort of like, 
sideswipe me. Like I was expecting something interesting, but once I started watching it, I was like, okay, what did I just get myself into? It's this weird <laughs> amalgamation of random factoids about Winnipeg history, but also his childhood and the fact that he has this love hate relationship with Winnipeg. And then it's also part him trying to recreate his childhood with actors, but his mother's playing herself. And then, yeah, and it's very surreal. And then all the editing and the pacing of it, it was just so rapid. I was like, it it didn't stop. Yeah, I've always described this movie as a fever dream because it sort of comes over you as this whole atmosphere of strangeness. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, Winnipeg is a very conducive city to the arts. So they have a lot of homegrown artists because their funding's really good, things like that. So you get some truly interesting stuff coming out of there. Well, there's also the use of this really bizarre repetition with certain things. Like he talks about the forks and the lap, and he constantly repeats these words and phrases that tie everything together. And it's really just, it's fascinating that someone made something like this. <laughs> It's almost, if you know Guy Madden, it's like his most normal movie, I'd argue. But like, if you don't know anything about him, it really is like one of the strangest documentaries you'll ever see. And I think it was commissioned by the city of Winnipeg, who didn't quite know what they were getting into. But really? That's amazing. Cinema, so. mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's Canadian cinema. What do they expect? If you look at like anything that the NFB has released, like, come on, <laughs> like, what are you going to get? Yeah, I just found it interesting way he sort of derailed into some random Winnipeg history. And I was like, this doesn't actually relate, but somehow you weaved it into this story of your own childhood. And most of it's made up. Oh, really? Yeah, like the, the if day happened, but a lot of it was made up. Yeah, my Winnipeg is like a very different type of documentary. I wouldn't even call it a mockumentary or pseudo. It's almost like a this happened to me in my dreams or like, this is how I, I perceive it in my mind. It's so a it's, dreamy it's, mentory. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's very accurate, but it, it really isn't. It's accurate to him and only him. So it's, it's really interesting because I don't really recall having seen any documentaries like that. He's an unreliable narrator. Yes. A very, very much. much so. It's like a documentary through a Rashomon filter. It's his perspective. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And, and his perspective is a very, uh, very unique one, let's say. It almost makes you think he's probably a pathological liar in real life. No, yeah. I think he's just... Uh, or maybe just he, he's just, he, he went a little bit eccentric with, you know, the embellishment of his youth. He's just you know how some effect. kids are described as having an overactive imagination? That's kind of what yeah. I picture. Yeah. Yeah. You would have to see his other films, like Howard Benzini, which uh, he does a lot of stuff where it's like uh, pseudo silent films, which aren't even from the era. But like he's he's like recreated it like the same way, like authentically silent. There's like actually no sound at all. Not even like a soundtrack. He really does live in his own little world. It's a, he's a very fascinating but uh, unsettling filmmaker. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of his for sure. But uh Let's just say if you don't like my Winnipeg, don't look further because like that's like the most normal thing I've ever seen him do. Well, I mean, I'm definitely going to check out his other stuff because this was interesting. It was also very suffocating because there was not a single wide shot of scenery in that whole thing. It huh. felt very, very isolated. Which I think is intentional because that's probably what he's actually trying to say about Winnipeg, that he felt suffocated by it. Also, that that score was a really interesting choice and the fact that it never lets up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to meet this guy in real life. Do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about those horse heads? That, 
yeah, I don't, it just, in the context of it, it just seems like normal, just having seen the movie, like, yeah, no, that makes sense. How do you feel about Roger Ebert when he ranked this 10th in his top films of the, of the 2000s? Like, anything, documentary, fiction, anything, this was, this was 10th. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Every year, Ebert also picked a movie that was sort of the weird honorable mention, like most spectacular and unusual, because Mm -hmm. he felt he couldn't reasonably compare them to other movies. And for the year my Winnipeg came out, that was the one he picked. Yes. And it ended up being like one of his favorite films of of those Mm -hmm. 10 years, which we will actually get to one of his other picks, which ranked higher. I think it was like fifth. Me, you, and everyone we know. Darn you. I was going to bring that up. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. Uh, But first, we got another movie to discuss. Uh, The one that I was told to watch was was selected by you, James. This is... um, I've been very unfamiliar with the work of Greg Araki outside of... I think it's called The White Bird of the Blizzard. Yeah. You have told me for like months now, possibly years, you got to check out some of his classic stuff. So I finally have... I finally saw Mysterious Skin, and ooh, that was tough. That was a tough, tough movie. So, first off, I love his version of nostalgia, because like a lot of filmmakers, like Wong Kar Wai, Sofia Coppola, they indulge in in like nostalgia, and I, I'm a sucker for it every time. But his version with like, you know, the the shoegaze music and. It almost feels like a '90s film, but shot with with 2000s cameras. Like, yeah. I'm all for, you know, aesthetically, I think it's just so lush and just so hypnotizing, which is so difficult because that side of the film is just so gorgeous to look at. And then you get to the subject matter, which is like so tough. It's so tough to watch that movie. Oof. Oh, it is. But it's he found a way to pull it off in a way that's almost elegant. Yeah, it's strange because... Um, it's it's a bit of a triggering topic, so I'm just going to give a warning to listeners out there. It's uh, it it deals heavily with uh, sexual violence and sexual harassment and molestation. So, um, we're not going to go too deeply into it, but just that alone, it's like, how do you even? It's not even like a like a plot device. It's like the primary story is about two survivors of of harassment from like a young age so uh and seeing how both lives deviated when they grew up so that alone i can imagine so many filmmakers doing problematic things or the wrong gaze or something that like if Lars Lars Trier did something like this i could imagine it'd be a mess i can imagine it'd be a huge Almost mess definitely and like just the wrong message and everything but somebody like Greg Araki who from the little I've seen, he sets out to deviate from what's expected of films like this. You're right. It is handled very tenderly, almost like it's still hard hitting, but I feel like I'm not, my hand's not being held. It's still challenging, but I feel like I'm still being embraced. Yeah. Definitely. I think it handles trauma from abuse in a way that it doesn't force you to experience it. It's almost implied for the most part. You're aware of it. But there's Mm -hmm. also the angle where a lot of his film work, he kind of deals in these surreal dreamscapes for the framework. Like, you know, it's almost like you're on the edge of reality with seeing these two characters and how they handled everything. Yeah, it. And like kudos to both um, Joseph Gordon-Levin and and Brady Corbett, who 
do a really good job of, of playing, um, I, I believe they're late teenagers, early adults. They're, yeah, something like, around there. Yeah, they're like on the cusp of adulthood. And, you know, how they both internalized these traumas and how it, like, leaks into their lives like uh, how you know how they deal with it on a daily basis in different ways uh both self-destructive i would argue in different ways um just so so difficult but the way that iraqi uh, framed all of this is it, again he he just he pulled it off yeah and it's interesting because this is his most subtle film i would say I haven't seen all of them. There's still a couple I haven't seen, but up until then, he was kind of dealing with a, stuff that was a lot more surreal and edgy. And this one was, he was able to apply his weird surreal aesthetic with a more serious subject matter, but still very digestible for a general audience, which isn't always easy for, you know, kind of the more creative directors to do. They always usually have a problem with, um, they, it's uncanny that they unintentionally impose their style on people where his is more so mixed in. Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. Well, all I can say is I'm excited to check out more Greg Iraqi material. Probably Kaboom. Um, that's probably going to be my Kaboom next Kaboom is a really interesting one. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited. I think it was just one of those things that we all got recommended. Something unique, something a little out there, something challenging but not overly challenging something that enriched all all three of us i think and that was no different than than our communal film rachel now i'll give you the reins what what did we all watch for for the month of march okay so it was my turn to pick so i was like well it's women's history month let's pick a movie directed by a woman i mix this up you guys so I mixed up me and you and everyone we know with Imagine Me and You, which has a completely different premise and is a much more conventional romantic comedy. Still a bit transgressive in its own way, but... Those are such similar names, though. Very, very different. So I went in expecting something completely different and was a little bit taken aback, but I still really found it very interesting. Uh, What did you guys think? This movie was wild. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like the I minute know, it started, right. I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then like before, like that first scene, I'm like, okay. And then he lights his hand on fire and I'm just like, okay, what did, <laughs> what did I get myself into? And then I'm watching through and all this stuff that really strange stuff happens. And I'm just like, this person literally just remade happiness. Just, it's a little bit lighter, a little less difficult to discuss, but yes, this this reminded me of happiness as well, which uh, just a reminder, because I don't think we brought it up yet. Uh, this film that we that we all watch, none of us have seen before. So uh, we were going in completely blind. Exactly. So uh, when John Hawks is like lighting his hand on fire and then it yeah, it becomes like the the middle ground between happiness by Todd Solins and American Beauty by Sam Mendes. Uh yeah. <laughs> it I will say again, it's easier to discuss than happiness, which happiness is like one of the trickiest films to discuss in history, so I'm not going to. I'm gonna discuss this film instead. Um I think, uh, well, first and foremost, it's important to know that this was Miranda July's directorial debut with with feature feature films. Yeah, exactly. She uh, participated in creating um, shorts and... uh, Spoken word art, short stories. Exactly. Uh, Performance arts. 
Yeah, so she's like uh, somebody you would find in like a like a gallery or something. So um, knowing that, some of these shots make perfect sense. Like some of her, some of the visions she has in this in this film, like uh, I won't say the word, but like when her character writes a word on her windshield, and you could like see it like basically overlaying over like the, 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 like the, like a sunset, let's say that's something you would see either as like an installation or a photograph in a gallery. Like it was just so picturesque and so many other things, whether it's John Hawks lighting his hand on fire or some of the more uncomfortable awakenings or, or discussions that are had, all of those just felt like things that, she conjured up while creating art and just see them all compiled here, whether it's like a more poetic something or other, like uh, some of the discussions people have or that ending, which almost felt Lynchian, like, like just this dream image and the source that's responsible for something that happens in the film, which I don't want to spoil. And like that explanation, it's almost surreal. Like, it was just so all over the place with all of its many visions, but also tethered by her as a director, as an actress, as a writer. It all came back to her. And because of that, it still is very grounded. Like it's explorative, but it never loses its footing, which for film Liz daring is really, really big of an accomplishment. I also felt this movie was at its strongest when her character was on screen and when it was focused on her. And I think that's because she's such a compelling screen presence and she put so much of herself into this movie. Yeah, I can oh, agree yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. I will have to say, though, I was really impressed with all the young actors in the movie. They mm-hmm. pulled this off in a way I never thought they would, especially given the types of subject matter and the certain situations like that initial online chat scene towards the beginning of the movie. Where mm-hmm. I just completely lost it when the when the really interesting stuff happened in that conversation. Or, you know, when I heard the phrase Jimmy Haha, I was like, what is this? Where am I? This can only happen in the early 2000s. Yeah, it was 2005, I think. And a lot has changed even in such a short period of time. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because that film kind of came out around the time where indie film almost became a genre back when, you know, all the studios started their offshoots and IFC was buying up a bunch of stuff. Like you had like Napoleon Dynamite and Juno and Charlie Bartlett and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist and and all all stuff like that. And the, yeah, they all had the same marketing. They even they all had the same fonts for the posters, basically. Yeah. And it was almost it's almost a point where it's like you almost have to be in on the joke, otherwise those movies really aren't that enjoyable in retrospect. And edgy humor was sort of the style of the time. I'm not saying this film is anything like, say, South Park or anything edgy like that, but it does kind of fit in with that sort of style. Well, it came yeah, out the same I, year Superbad came out, right? Or was that, or did Superbad come out a couple years later? Oh no, Superbad was 2007. So this came out a couple years after. Yeah. Or, or me and you and everyone know it came out two years before Superbad. But yeah, yeah, it's just like, yeah, it was a time where edgy humor really just sort of worked and nobody thought anything of it. But this movie couldn't be made now. No. I actually don't know because you have something like Booksmart. I mean, which isn't this, but... I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I personally wouldn't be surprised if we did. It would have to be a very, very um, precautious film with how it 
attempt something like this. But and also depends on who makes it because I can't imagine you know some filmmakers who I won't like mention for obvious reasons. Uh, oh, might get like dirty looks if they make something like this. But somebody who's like you know better suited for this, I I can honestly imagine it being made. Not it wouldn't be the know, same movie. That's true. It wouldn't be entirely the same, but I can imagine like a lot of its themes and perhaps some of its uh, more interesting uh, choices. Let's say I don't know, and the fact that it's getting like quite the following, especially through through Criterion. I don't know. It's it's finding its footing nowadays. I mean, the fact that people today still talk about stuff like happiness. It's like. Even though it seems like to to me, I feel like this this stuff isn't exactly as dead as we might think it is. But that's just me. Yeah, I think it's just the times and everybody's there's this kind of hypersensitivity to it. It's like when we talk yeah. about happiness. I say happiness is hilarious in the same manner that you might say Salo is beautiful. I mean, you're yeah, basically like a psychopath a if you like them, way. but objectively, these films work. Yeah, in like a challenging way, you can say like. Salo is a beautifully crafted film, let's say. But like even saying that, you're, people are going to be like, like you need to be committed. Like I, I, I get it though. So we all approve of this film. I wouldn't say approve, but I'd say appreciate. I was entertained. Okay, so I, I, it feels like we all like it in different ways. Whether it's acknowledgement or full on appreciation, or even finding it entertaining in, in some respects so uh that was quite a pick if any of you uh participated in, in our in our selection this month please let us know what you thought because i'm sure there's like a million thoughts that you can have next month we're going to be doing a cult classic by herc harvey uh this has been touted by so many people including david lynch uh this is carnival of souls which uh i'm astonished that i haven't seen but uh neither have uh rachel and james which you know might make sense with their taste but like i'm astonished that i still have not seen it yet so will it be more challenging than me you and everyone we know i don't know i don't know anything about this and i'm trying to keep it that way so that's going to be next month so if you want to join us for the may smorgasbord please check that out during april you can find it on the criterion channel i believe yes i think so yeah, what else can you find on streaming services? What are our weekly recommendations? Uh, Rachel, what's yours? Okay, mine's not readily available on a streaming service, at least in Canada, but it's Easter weekend, you guys. So, sorry, I'm going to go for it. Jesus Christ Superstar. Hey, oh. 1971. I won't sing it here because of copyright and because we don't have two and a half hours, but it is, for my money, the best musical ever written. It's got an amazing score. It's got tons of campy 70s throwback stuff. I think you'll have a grand old time this Easter weekend, so check it out. Uh, shout outs to Ted Neely. Uh, so, uh, James, what is your pick for this week? I decided to go with, and I don't know where it's streaming, but I decided to go with uh, the movie Bloodsport starring Jean Claude Van Damme. Okay. Just because it's a martial arts movie and it's a really interesting one because the premise is kind of ridiculous because he plays a soldier who's participating in an illegal martial arts tournament. Like he goes AWOL for it. And it's also just Jean-Claude Van Damme. I, I think his vernacular and the way he talks is always great, even though it's just, it it's almost like he's self-aware that he's a character almost. Mm-hmm. 
Like, like he's not even trying to be make it natural. He's like almost like how Nicolas Cage does, but almost in like a way like he can't help it. That's like when he did. Uh, I think it's called JVCD, like the one where he basically plays himself. I didn't see that, but yeah, that is it's similar to where it's kind of a meta yeah. film. Also, the dude's a great martial artist. Yeah, right on. Okay, so that that's also a great pick. Uh, everyone should go check that out. As for myself, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Let's go spaghetti western with the great silence, which uh, is by the original director of Django, not Django Unchained. Uh, <laughs> this Django, <laughs> well, Django Unchained is Tarantino. This is Sergio Corbucci. So, uh, the great silence is a painfully exquisite film, but at the same time, it's also very rebellious. And if you're looking for a western film that might really go against what you're what you're gonna what you're perceiving of it and what you're predicting this is the one like it's it's almost painful how refreshing it is and i won't say much more than that you need to check out the great silence otherwise that was the k-cut thank you for joining us for another cinematic smorgasbord until next month and we've got our oscar roundtable coming up lots of exciting stuff we are going into the l-cut 